0: Hello once again, everybody, and thank you for joining me in the Better's Box, is the book.com's MLB betting podcast for Monday, April twentieth. I am your host, Adam Burke. This and every edition of the Better's Box presented by our friends over at DSI Sportsbook, BTB, and the number two hundred is that promo code one hundred percent deposit match bonus for the sportsbook, one hundred percent deposit match bonus for the live casino at Bet DSI. It's only a game until you bet it. Happy 420 to all my listeners out there. If that's something that you celebrate, I hope you're enjoying the day. Uh, Not necessarily my thing, but a thing for a lot of my friends. So hopefully you're enjoying the holiday here and enjoying the festivities and maybe getting a little bit of a break from all the stuff that we've been dealing with out there uh, in this quarantined world. Over at bangthebook.com, you can check out my 2020 MLB betting guide in PDF form. We also have a lot of draft coverage over there for you as well. And we'll be doing some draft stuff here this week on Bang the Book Radio. We'll talk NFL Draft on Tuesday with Brian Blessing. Talk NFL Draft on Wednesday with Thor Nyström of Roto World. Then on Thursday, I'll give you some final draft thoughts as part of the betters box. Uh, so a lot of draft stuff coming your way here this week on Bang the Book Radio. And uh, look, this is the fourth time that I've recorded this April 20th show. Twice on Skype, the audio wound up being unusable. Once via the old way with Blog Talk Radio. That didn't upload properly. So, this is the fourth time that I've recorded this edition of the Better's Box, and I am absolutely praying that this one goes off without a hitch here. Hopefully, it does. We're going to be going through the Monday mailbag here on today's show. I've gotten several good questions about the sports betting industry and about Major League Baseball and betting here for today's segment so that's what I'm going to do for the betters box It's going to be all Monday mailbag here on today's show but the last four questions that I have all very much tied into baseball all will be good talking points here for today's program and admittedly in the interest of time I may be going through some of this stuff a little bit quicker than I did on previous recordings Uh, my wife's getting home from work and all that so you know like I said I'm already doing this for the fourth time today kind of pissed off about it little bit frustrated to say the least so gonna be going through this on today's show but i will expand on some of this stuff for thursday's edition of the podcast as well so we start things off with a three pack of questions here from our buddy rich Lamons, former bang the book contributor full-time loyal listener of bang the book radio rich hope you and your family are doing well love you brother thank you so much for being a supporter here of bang the book radio first question from rich here Once sports return, do you think that the handle for sports books will be massive just because sports are back or smaller than anticipated because people don't really know how to treat current events? It's a great question. It's kind of an unknown. We don't necessarily know how things are going to play out once everything comes back around. Here's my take on it, though. The first is that obviously people aren't going to have a whole lot of disposable income. They're not going to have a lot of fun money. A lot of people furloughed, a lot of people laid off, of course, small businesses dealing with all the stuff going on with the SBA and the PPP loan and all those types of things. Not that I'm bitter about it or anything like that, but I don't know what people's bank roles are going to look like. Now, what I can tell you is this, I think the offshore marketplaces will be a little bit more active, will be a little bit more robust because a lot of people had funds in those offshore books. And because they're not quite as easily accessible as the U.S. facing books, I think that maybe a lot of those bankrolls are kind of still intact here at this point in time. With the U.S. facing apps, it's very easy to just withdraw. Uh, And, you know, a lot of people probably did go that route if they needed to tap into that money. Now, if they didn't, then their money is still going to be there and they'll still be plenty active uh, with these sports betting markets. Now, I will say this, a lot of this is going to be predicated on the context in which these leagues come back. We know that there will be a diminished home advantage if there is one at all for these teams. And also, you know, what does the format look like? Do we dive right in? You know, do we have the playoffs right away? We're not going to you know, waste time doing scrimmages. So that certainly creates a very uncertain environment. And what I can tell you is that, and as we're seeing here with the NFL draft, sharp money loves uncertain environments they love things that are a little bit chaotic and that's true not just of the sports betting market but also of the sport of the stock market as well uncertainty usually favors the bold, so i think that sharp bettors will be out there and moss some will wait some will hold off and see what things look like but others are going to be very very active here thinking that they probably have some edges thinking that, you know, this unconventional environment probably not properly accounted for, you know, maybe young players that don't have families or anything like that. As of yet, maybe some of those younger teams going to be a little bit more invested than some of those more veteran-laden teams. I don't know. We'll have to see how this plays out and how it's priced in the betting markets. But again, a lot of uncertainty here, and hopefully we get an answer to this question. Hopefully we do get sports back here sooner rather than later. Second question from Rich here, asking if I've been practicing my wiffle ball bat flips. Quite frankly, I haven't played wiffle ball in a long time. It's a lot like trying to get together a home poker game. Hard to get enough people to do that. Haven't played wiffle ball in years. Shame on me, I guess. But uh, no, I've not been practicing my bat flips. Although I have gotten back into playing MLB The Show, I guess sometimes there are bat flips kind of associated with that. Last question here from Rich in his three-pack for the Monday Mailbag. Other than getting season prep work done early, are you personally doing or learning anything new with the downtime? And regrettably, not really. There are a lot of things that I probably should be working on, projects that I've wanted to do, stuff like that. But I basically went from 100 to zero to about you know, 30, 35 now. It was a very high-volume style. Everybody knows that. That's followed my work at bangthebook.com did the MLB betting guy, did all the conference tournament previews, and all of it pretty much for naught. And mentally, it's kind of hard to get over that. It's kind of hard to find the motivation uh, to do a lot of things. You know, after you put out so much energy, so much time, so much effort, and then all of it just kind of dissipates, you know, it's kind of tough to have that level of motivation. And quite frankly, I'm supposed to be in Hawaii right now. So it's hard to have a whole lot of motivation to do anything Uh, people obviously much more difficult situations than I am and my heart goes out to them Uh, but as far as you know this downtime for me probably wasting a lot of it to be totally honest with you been trying to work on some personal writing some travel stuff things like that kind of writing for a different audience type thing but you know as far as learning anything new as far as working on anything in particular no not necessarily we'll be doing some college football power ratings and stuff as we get some more clarity on what's going to happen you know I, I just wrote over 100,000 words in the MLB betting guide for the season to maybe complete half or so of its games so not real enthused about putting a lot of effort into something that may not happen And of course there's really not a whole lot of equity right now in trying to get prepared for that season because a lot of these markets have already been opened up with win totals games of the year stuff like that I'm not going to get out in front of the market and I would just be tying funds up with the hope that baseball basketball and hockey come back around so not really doing too much as far as learning something new or working on anything new uh just trying to you know uh get by i guess would would be the way to put it much like most of the people out there but rich i appreciate the questions thank you so much brother and again like i said hope you and yours are doing well a four pack of questions here from matt via email these are excellent questions very happy to break these down i've already broken them down three different times today so We'll see how the fourth time goes with this. But the first question here from Matt, how do you handicap using the same information that the books have? You know, we talk about ERA, FIP, and XFIP discrepancies. We talk about why line moves are based on that. We talk about WOBA and XWOBA. And yeah, the books have all of that at their disposal as well. The difference is we actually utilize it. We've got a very different set of goals. From what the sports books have. Remember, the sports books aren't trying to predict an outcome. They're not trying to win the game. They want to win based on the rules of betting. They want to win based on the VIG. They want to win based on balancing their action and limiting their risk. We want to win by picking the outcome, by predicting what's going to happen. So, because we have such a different goal, things are a lot different between us and the sports books. And, in fact, I asked a buddy of mine who was on the odds team for a couple of different prominent sportsbook companies about this. I'm like, you know, look, line moves happen from, you know, ERA, FIP, and XFIP discrepancies. Are those priced in the market? Is that something that they're paying attention to? Do they shade those lines? And, basically, he told me point blank, and this was a couple of years ago, maybe things have changed, but he basically told me point blank that I was overthinking it, that they're not looking – at these sabermetric stats yeah maybe they're expecting action to come in a certain way but that just means that when it comes in they're going to react more promptly they're going to pay more attention to it when it starts coming in maybe there are some statistical indicators or maybe you know they'll wind up shading prices on big favorites something like that guys like sale degrom bueller in particular when they're playing against really bad teams which again, a lot of people will argue that the value in betting on baseball is taking underdogs, and that could very well be true. But the reality of odds making is that they are posting a number. They are putting a number out there in hopes that they get as much balanced action as they possibly can, or posting a number to find out some information, whether that line is right or wrong, and then be prepared to limit their risk that's the bookmaking side of everything for us it's completely different it is completely different with what we're trying to do they're trying to minimize risk and balance action and try to win based on the vig based on the juice we are trying to win because we want to win our bet and a lot of times here you know we'll look at a pitcher with a 650 era a 450 fip and a 425 xfip and we know that's a guy that's probably going to get better We know that that's a guy that we probably want to take an extended look at. But when you look at this from a a bookmaking standpoint, the guy has a 650 ERA. So yeah, his advanced metrics are maybe better indicators of future performance, but also too, they have to react to what has happened, what has actually taken place as opposed to what could happen. So yeah, maybe sharp money comes in on that guy but maybe it doesn't. And if they shade a line 10 to 15 cents expecting sharp money to come in and it doesn't get there, well, you've got an avalanche of public money fading a pitcher with a 650 ERA. So we've got two very different goals in mind on each side of the counter here. So we use those sabermetric stats. We use regression analysis. They may be aware of it, but they're not using it with the posting of that line they're just reacting to it with the action that comes in. So even though they have this information as well, they don't use it to the same degree that we do. So it still creates an advantage for us if we're able to interpret the data properly. And of course, if it winds up coming to fruition. So yeah, they've got it. And maybe some of the you know really sharp baseball minds out there in the odds making community you know, kind of delve into it a little bit. But for the most part, That's up to us. That's up to us as the betters to analyze what that stuff actually means. Second question here uh, from Matt. In terms of worst pitchers against righties and lefties and whatnot, and for those that don't know, last week I talked about this, the lefty-righty splits. Home road splits are into the line. They are already built into that number because there's a different power rating at home versus on the road for a lot of these pitchers. Now, when lefty-righty splits, I don't think that's factored as much into the equation, so I do think that can create a little bit of an edge for us. Now, Matt's question here, because last week, I looked at the top pitchers against righties and against lefties, and what we kind of noticed was that righties were very good against both righties and lefties at the top end, and Matt's kind of wondering here what the causation is for that, and really what it boils down to is that a lot of the best pitchers just happen to be right-handed. When you look at the top 50 individual F war seasons dating back to 2010, and that's using the fan graphs calculation of wins above replacement player, only 12 of those 50 seasons are from left-handed pitchers. And moreover, only seven different pitchers are on that list. And furthermore, three of those seven seasons rank 45th, 47th, and 48th with Patrick Corbin, C.C. Sabathia, and Dallas Keuchel, respectively. Now, the other four guys, Clayton Kershaw, Cliff Lee, Chris Sale, David Price. So, obviously, those are some upper echelon left-handed pitchers. What it really boils down to, quite frankly, is just that 70% of the pitchers out there, essentially, are right-handed. You know, 70% of your plate appearances, if you're an everyday player will be against a right-handed pitcher. So it's just a larger sample size. And simply by the law of averages, you're going to have more right-handed pitchers that have the potential to be elite because you just have a higher number of them. And that really is the case here. If you look overall, if you don't just cherry pick the best of the best and you look overall, lefty pitchers on the whole do better against left-handed batters than right-handed pitchers do. That just is what it is. So even though the top guys were right-handed on that list from last week, they were the elites, the DeGroms, the Buellers, the Verlanders, the Cinderguards, types of guys like that. The guys that are the best of the best are the best against everybody. But when you look at lefty versus righty splits, you've got a lot of pitchers that are average and below average against left-handed batters. So it's just the, the sample that we were looking at last week just highlighted the elite right-handed pitchers on the whole lefty pitchers do fare better against left-handed batters than right-handed pitchers do. Next question here from Matt. Why the magic number of minus 180 and do you play it often personally? And again, the reference that Matt's making here is that I've talked in the past about how over the last five years favorites of minus 180 or higher have been extremely profitable, very, very profitable. Betting it blind has been really, really advantageous for bettors that are out there. Now, admittedly, it was just an arbitrary number. It was just a number I looked at in the killersports.com database. Maybe subconsciously, I thought it was a pretty good starting point because a minus 180 favorite has an implied win probability of 64.29%. And I think when you start getting into 65-35 propositions, that's where you kind of get a pretty high level of confidence that a team is going to win that game. Now, minus 150 is a 60% implied win probability, minus 266.67%. But mainly what I just wanted to illustrate is that big favorites have been very profitable. And part of this is because when you look around at the composition of the 30 teams in Major League Baseball here, 10 are trying to win. 10 are perennial playoff teams. Another 10 are okay. They're not bad. They're not tanking. They're not going all in to compete, but they're probably going to be, you know, plus or minus four or five wins of 500, something like that. Then you have another 10, another third of the league, that's just not trying to win at all. So a lot of these big favorites, in particular with this current crop of elite pitchers that we have, a lot of these big favorites have just been very, very profitable. So that's really all I was trying to illustrate. The minus 180 was kind of an arbitrary number, but you know, if you go up to minus 200, it shows the same thing, if not to a higher degree. Minus 220, minus 225, so on and so forth. You, know, when you get down in the minus 140s, minus 150s, it's not like a blind bet winning proposition. But at minus 180 or higher, it is. Now, why is that the case? Again you've got a third of the teams that are really good a third of the teams that are trying to be good and a third of the teams not trying at all another part of it is that you know again betting lines are so are based so much on the starting pitcher and we've got some really big dichotomies between starting pitchers here at this point in time not to mention the big dichotomies between the lineups that are out there so you just naturally get a lot of big favorite scenarios with the way that major league baseball is set up here now just as a frame of reference just something to illustrate how baseball is different you know a minus 180 favorite in baseball looks like a lot a minus 180 money line favorite in the nfl probably a three and a half point favorite y'all you know, a minus 220 favorite about minus four minus 240 favorite minus five and a half we don't necessarily think of those as big favorite roles but in baseball we do so Just kind of an interesting little frame of reference there, kind of a comparison point with Major League Baseball and something like the NFL. Finally, this is my favorite question here from Matt, so I'll spend a little bit more time on this one. Last week, or maybe it was two weeks ago, I talked about stabilization points. I talked about which statistics stabilize early, which ones we can look at with a high degree of reliability, a high degree of confidence. So Matt's question here is, Am I missing something, or is stabilization one of, if not the most useful concept to understand and apply to handicapping, fantasy sports, and all things gambling? Matt continues to ask, can you go over stabilization a little bit more? Not the definition, but rather which stats stabilize sooner versus later? Now, remember, one of the reasons that we look at FIP as opposed to ERA is because FIP is predicated on the things that a pitcher can control. The four components being strikeouts, walks, hit-by-pitches, and home runs. ERA, defense-dependent, context-dependent, stuff like that. But also, one of the reasons to hone in on FIP is because of those four components, strikeouts, walks, home runs, and hit-by-pitches, strikeout rate, walk rate, and home run rate all stabilize at a small sample size of outcomes strikeout percentage and walk percentage stabilize around 50 to 70 plate appearances home run rate is around 100 plate appearances home run to fly ball rate a little bit further down the line than that but still you've got these primary components of FIP that we can evaluate and look at with a higher degree of confidence early on in the process than we can ERA you'll get batting average for example batting average never really reaches a stabilization point but on base percentage slugging percentage ops on base plus slugging and iso isolated power which is slugging percentage minus batting average those four metrics stabilize around 350 plate appearances so that's about a half season's worth for a full-time player so batting average never stabilizes but on base percentage and slugging percentage and OPS actually do. So those are better indicators, better barometers of offensive performance. And why when people talk about, Oh, he's got such a low batting average, nobody looks at batting average because your goal as a hitter is to get on base and on base percentage stabilizes low enough that we can actually evaluate that with some degree of confidence. Now I've talked about this a lot in the past, but I really like to use the baseball savant data, the stat cast data of exit velocity in my handicapping. This is important. Exit velocity becomes reliable and stable for hitters at 40 to 50 batted balls. It's the same thing with barrel rate, about 40 to 50 batted balls. Now for barrel balls, 80, roughly 80% of them become hits. And more than 75% of them become extra base hits. So doubles, triples, and home runs. So guys that hit the ball hard and make a lot of quality contact with barrels have a lot of extra base hits. So again, that's why I look for pitchers that don't allow a lot of barrels. That don't allow a lot of high-velocity contact. Because I want guys that are able to limit damage. But... With exit velocity for pitchers, at 40 to 50 batted balls, it reaches a point of reliability. However, the more batted balls you accumulate, the less reliable it gets. The reliability point actually starts to go down as you get more batted balls. So it stabilizes and becomes reliable at a low number. However, as you keep increasing the number of batted balls, it becomes unstable and unreliable and what that says to us is that pitchers make adjustments and we know that we know pitchers maybe change a grip maybe change their mechanics maybe change their usage patterns they start throwing certain pitches more or throwing certain pitches less so as the sample size gets bigger because pitchers are always trying to find that sweet spot we see less reliability with exit velocity for them now, that being said, just because it's not statistically significant doesn't mean that it's something that we can't use in a handicapping context. By the definition of stabilization, it's not there, but it is still relatively reliable. So we can still use that in our handicapping process. And why is exit velocity so important? Why well, I have links in the betters box notes for today one, to the Russell Carlton article over at Baseball Prospectus about exit velocity and the low stabilization point. And another is an article from Rob Arthur over at 538 on what suppressing exit velocity actually means. If you look at batted ball data, this was, I believe, from 2015 and 2016 in that article. If you took 1.5 miles per hour of exit velocity off of a batted ball, on average that batted ball would drop by 13 points in batting average on balls in play. So the weaker the contact, the more likely that ball is to be an out. And of course, this makes sense. It goes in line with what I've talked about before, where generally speaking, the batting average on a ball in play or on any ball you know, hit forward at 95-plus miles per hour is in the 518 to 520 range. If you go down to 94 plus miles per hour, it goes down to about 505. If you go down to 93 plus miles per hour, it goes down to about 490. So with each mile per hour that you drop, the actual batting average goes down roughly about 15 points. So exit velocity and limiting hard contact is critically important if you want to have success as a pitcher. Another thing that we can take a look at here is controlling the count because it's much more difficult to hit with two strikes than it is to hit in a hitter's count two and one three and one something like that and what we find is that if you look at the difference between a first pitch strike and a first pitch ball the offensive numbers are dramatically different we're talking about about 140 140 point difference in on base percentage 110 point difference in slugging percentage just by throwing strike one As opposed to throwing ball one. So, guys that get ahead in the count, guys that throw a lot of strikes, guys that limit walks are also going to generally limit their exit velocities against. So, even though we're not talking about the dictionary definition of a stabilization point for exit velocity for pitchers, we can still use a lot of this information to our advantage to create a handicapping profile of each starting pitcher and then react accordingly. So the big takeaway here is that hitters reach stabilization points much quicker than pitchers. And one of the things I mentioned previously with Rich's questions is that a lot of sharp bettors try to capitalize on high variance and uncertain markets. Just naturally, overall, pitchers are a high variance environment. So that gives us the opportunity to really dig deep use regression analysis, use these metrics and this data that's out there and find pitchers that we want to back or we want to fade. One last thing I'll mention here for this segment of the betters box is that another thing that I look for here is I like to look for injury indicators, because as I just talked about throwing strikes, being ahead in the count suppresses exit velocity exit or suppresses, uh, yeah, suppresses exit velocity and then exit velocity suppresses what happens with the outcome of those batted balls if you've got injured pitchers with velocity drops command and control drops increase in walks decrease in strikeouts stuff like that those are guys i want to look to fade because if they're not healthy not only are they not locating but they're giving up higher velocity batted balls which is why a lot of those guys will get knocked around a few times then all of a sudden hit the disabled list So I look for those injury indicators as part of my handicapping process as well. So there's so much stuff that goes into this. Stabilization points, evaluation of pitchers, evaluation of this StatCast data, so on and so forth. I'll talk more about this stuff on Thursday here. Again, trying to get my fourth recording of this version of the betters box, uh, you know, kind of wrapped up here. But great questions from Matt. And again, I will expand on these a little bit more on Thursday's edition of the show maybe talk a little bit more about stabilization points about some of the other indicators that i look for stuff like that to handicap these pitchers so excuse me once again tuesday brian blessing will talk nfl draft maybe some horse racing or golf or who knows what else we just kind of riff and freestyle for the most part on those tuesday shows wednesday thor nystrom from roto world will talk nfl draft thursday i'll give you some final thoughts on the nfl draft from me and do another edition of the betters box that'll do it for me thank you so much for listening everybody and remember that you will never strike out when you're in the betters box